Hi, hello, and welcome back to another episode, episode number 19 of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. My name is Adi Elmore. I am your host. Happy New Year, first and foremost. Welcome to a new decade. I know there's some there's some confusion out there. Some people say the decade doesn't actually start until 2021. I have to disagree with that. I don't know why you would say that, but some people feel strongly about that. Uh, but uh, that's not that's not where I stand. So happy New Year! I hope you had a great New Year. Hope you had a safe New Year. And um, I'm glad to be back in the studio. Glad to be back in Cincinnati, and uh, and just kind of to talk a little bit of ball. And uh, we have quite a bit to talk about. The NFL playoffs are underway. The first round is complete. Uh, the college football playoff national championship is in a couple of days. There's been head coaching news in the NFL. The Reds have made a major move in the off season. Um, there's a lot going on. There's a, a new scandal in Major League Baseball, and we have, for the most part, reached the halfway point of the NBA season. The All-Star break will be next month, but the halfway point for most teams has already been reached. And then uh, we also have uh, two very sad topics to talk about, the passing of two Cincinnati legends, um, Sam Weish and Chuck Mayshock, uh, both who have, have done a lot of good things and, and done a lot of and impacted a lot of lives in, uh, in the Cincinnati area. So we'll talk about that. Uh, like I said, we'll talk about the NFL. I'm, I'm going to start with baseball. We also have some Instagram questions to get to in this episode, which I'm excited for that. Got some good questions and, and we'll talk about those. Um, but, uh, I do want to say next week, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, all things well, if everything works out, we are going to have uh, another guest on this podcast for uh, I believe the second time ever. That'll be Connor Lamonds. He is a uh, he is a basketball writer. He covers Ohio State basketball for uh, I believe it's is it Land Grant Holy Land. I I don't know exactly their name. I follow him. Let me let me dial up Connor's Twitter here. I believe it's uh, uh, let's see Land Grant. Land Grant, that's Land Grant Holy Land. That's what they call themselves. <clears throat> so uh, he covers Ohio State basketball for them. Biggest Ohio State basketball fan I've ever met. Very knowledgeable and a talented young writer. He's going to come on and talk about college basketball, and we'll talk a little bit of Ohio State. Watching Ohio State right now, actually uh, getting smoked in the second half against Maryland, uh, recording this on a Tuesday night. So Connor Lamonds will join us next week, and I'm excited about that. So. Looking forward to that. Um, but like I said, I want to start with with some baseball. The the news that has really kind of driven, I guess, driven conversation here in Cincinnati the past couple of days has been that the Reds have officially signed Shogo Akiyama. And you might be saying, who in the hell is that? Well, Shogo Akiyama is a uh, an outfielder. He's from Japan. He is the first Japanese player ever to play for the Cincinnati Reds. All thirty or all twenty-nine other teams have had a Japanese-born player. Uh, the Reds were the were the very last, which is in a franchise of first. They're the first to do everything. The Reds, uh, the Reds were were very last to have a Japanese-born player, which I think is interesting. And the Reds now have about twelve outfielders that are all pretty average, and you don't really know what you have in any of them. And so this is what Shogo is walking into. He's expected to come into Cincinnati and be the everyday center fielder from this point forward. He's 31 years old. He signed a three-year deal for $21 million. He'll be coming over to the major leagues for the first time in his career from Japan. Um, like I said, they have, the Reds now have a million outfielders and nowhere to put them. So what this says 
to me is that there is still absolutely some moves that are going to be made. A lot of people have made a big deal in Cincinnati about the Reds not going after Jose Iglesias, who was just tremendous as a shortstop here last year. But the fact of the matter is they're probably just not going to do that. And and it turns out he he signed with the Baltimore Orioles just the other day for one year, $3 million. Now, a lot of this, this has a lot of Reds fans up in arms and upset because this guy was just absolutely tremendous, hit nearly 300, the best, one of the best defensive players I've ever seen play the position. And then you have Freddie Galvis, and you're like, okay, well, Jose Iglesias is better than Freddie Galvis, and he would be cheaper at $3 million. We don't know what Jose Iglesias asked for, um, but there's just the odds of him doing that again are so low because he has never done that at any point in his career. So I, I don't hate the Reds not going after him. They've spent $100 million this offseason already between Akiyama, Mike Moustakis, Wade Miley, so on and so forth. I think they're going to be fine, but there are still moves that need to be made. Let's, let's look at this outfield. All right, tell me who moves the needle for you here in this outfield. Aristides Aquino, interesting guy who just took the majors by storm when he came up last year, but he had a lull, and you're really still concerned. Most people are still concerned about his swing if he'll be able to adjust that, his stance, if he'll be able to adjust that, and and more pitchers getting the book on him. He had a ton of home runs when he first came up. Then he had a lull the month after that, and you're just like, okay, well, is this guy going to be the everyday right fielder? And right now it looks like he's expected to be. Philip Irvin, coming off the best year of his major league career, what's he going to do? Is he going to be in a, in a platoon situation? Travis Jankowski, who they acquired from the uh, San Diego Padres. Never really had all that impressive of a major league career. Nick Martini, another guy. He's uh, only 25 years old, 30 years old now. And and you, you don't know anything about him really either. And a relatively young player. Then you have Mark Payton, who they took in the Rule 5 draft, who's expected to be a really good player. He's still very pretty young, but you don't know what to expect. Uh, Scott Shebler, we know what we have out of him, and he just doesn't seem like he will be at all a part of the future of this team. Nick Senzel, your top prospect, had a really good season for you last year. He is adjusting to center field. Jose Siri in the minor leagues, who has only has done nothing but but move up the ranks in the minor leagues. He, his bat fell off a lot last season. You got Josh Van Meter, who showed flashes of of greatness at times last season. He probably has a spot on the team just because he's so um, – uh, he, he's kind of a utility man. He can play all over the field. And then you got Jesse Winker, who was, was decimated by injury last year. Um, but is still a, a productive left-handed bat. And I think Winker is the type of guy, and this is a problem I had with David Bell last year, I think Jesse Winker is the type of guy that he needs to play every single day to be a solid major league player. And so when you look at that and you think about the way David Bell manages, which is not like that at all, he had an insane amount of lineups. He was moving guys up and down the order. There was Platoon and Philip Irvin and, and Jesse Winker and, and Nick Senzel and Aquino and Yasiel Puig and so on and so forth. They never got, neither one of them, Irvin or Van Meter, got consistent playing time. Irvin made the most of it and had a tremendous season. Winker really did not. He, he just never seemed to get in a groove. So you start to wonder, okay, is Jesse Winker the type of player that can play for a David Bell because of the way David Bell manages. And and I think it's a legitimate question, and I don't know if the answer to that is yes. So now add Shogo Akiyama into all this, 
and you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten outfielders, and none of them are truly proven at the major league level. So you have to get better still. I think there's a there, I think there's a pretty decent chance that Winker and Sinzel maybe both get dealt. I think there's still some outfield some some bullpen arms that are needed to take this uh, pitching staff to the next level. They're going to rely heavily on starting pitching, and if it, let's just say those starters get hurt, which they didn't last year, but if they do this year, they're going to need they're going to need a better bullpen than they have right now. There's nobody really that excites you. Matt Bowman was all right last year. Amir Garrett obviously is an elite talent. Rasiel Iglesias is up and down so much like a roller coaster. Michael Lorenzen is a reliable arm, but he's going to be playing at some outfield as well. Joel Kunal, you didn't really get much out of him. Cody Reed, who is still uber talented, but can just never seem to put it all together. Sal Romano, is he going to make an appearance in the bullpen? Tony Santian, he's probably still not quite ready. Justin Schaefer, you don't know anything about him. A young pitcher. Lucas Sims, who I think could be the best pitcher on the roster five years from now, has been excellent. And then you got Josh Smith and Robert Stevenson. Both of those guys have gone very much up and down in their major league careers. So there's still a lot of questions for the Reds, but I think what this does with Shogo Akiyama is they're saying, okay, here's our center fielder. We have our right fielder in Aristides Aquino, and now the biggest question is what do we do with left field? I think it's going to probably end up being because I, I can't foresee them making a move. I wouldn't be – I shouldn't say I, I shouldn't say Akiyama is the everyday center fielder. I misspoke. He's going to be the left fielder, and Sinzel is going to be the center fielder. So what I'm thinking is, and I was getting ahead of myself, I think there's a pretty good chance that Sinzel and Winker, or just Sinzel, ends up getting traded to the Cleveland Indians for Francisco Lindor. If the Reds are serious about winning a World Series, which they should be and they have told us that they are, if they are serious about it, they will make that move. I hate to I hate to think that. I love Nick Senzel. He's my favorite player on this Reds roster. I think he's the future. But if you will ask me, would you rather have a great young player or a World Series? I'm going to pick the World Series every time. Now, I'm not saying Shogo Akiyama in center field means that. I'm not saying Francisco Lindor at shortstop means the Reds are going to win the World Series. But when you look at the National League Central, every team in that division has either taken a step back or not taken a step at all. And the Reds have gotten better. The Pirates are going to be hot garbage. The Cubs lost their manager, have a rookie manager, are strapped for cash, or so they say, and have not done anything to get better, including losing a couple players. The St. Louis Cardinals are probably going to lose Marcelo Zuna. There's no way they can keep the pitching that they kept last year. They're going to be the best team besides the Reds, in the division, but that's about it. The Milwaukee Brewers have made the playoffs three consecutive seasons. They have done nothing this offseason besides change their logo. So the Reds have an opportunity, and what the fans want is for them to keep going. They've said, we're in this to win this. We want to do everything right. We're going to be aggressive. Now the Red, now the fans are calling for the Reds to be aggressive. If that means getting rid of a, of, of a, of a young prospect now in terms of for Francisco Lindor later, then so be it. Because that's your best opportunity at a World Series, and that's what everybody wants. That's why we play it. We don't play it to keep on keep prospects for later on. And Nick Senzel, I have no doubt, will have a great Major League career. Hopefully it's in Cincinnati, and hopefully he wins World Series here. But there's a very legitimate possibility that it isn't. And I wouldn't hate it if Francisco Lindor is the next shortstop of the Cincinnati Reds. So, like I said, Shogo Akiyama, three-year, $21 million deal. 
They have, uh, like I said, a bunch of outfielders, nowhere uh, really else to put them. And they're going to need to make some moves quickly because spring training starts next month. Yes, already so fast at the end of uh, February. Last year at age 31 for the Saitama Cebu Lions. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. In 143 games, he had 678 plate appearances. He had 303, 20 homers, 62 runs batted in, 12 stolen bases. He walked 78 times, struck out 108 times. He had a 392 on-base percentage. None of that really screams greatness, but that seems like a solid bat. I believe he's left-handed, a guy that you can plug and play in your lineup and uh, will probably be your everyday left fielder. So maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's really how I feel. Uh, about the Reds. Then there's another article, baseball-wise, that came out today that includes it's, uh, it accuses the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Astros of even more sign-stealing. This is a, a an article written in The Athletic by uh, Ken Rosenthal and a guy named uh, Evan Drellich. And what they do is they talk about how they have three sources on the record that were on the 2018 Red Sox. They talk about how this is becoming an, an ongoing problem in Major League Baseball with stealing signs, specifically with the use of electronics. And and basically, this was a less efficient system than what we talked about a few episodes ago with the Houston Astros and banging on a trash can and so on and so forth. But it's still cheating. And uh, there's a few things in this article that are really concerning, uh, especially with the way that, that Major League Baseball is trying to combat this. And they're putting... Uh, personnel in these replay rooms, according to this article, that are supposed to prevent players from cheating. And so there is so much inconsistent inconsistency between these officials in this replay room, which is just a few steps from the dugout, that some guys are buddy-buddy and let you get away with everything. Other guys are sticklers, don't let you get away with anything. But the fact of the matter is teams can do it at home, teams, teams can do it on the road. And what instead of just directly stealing a sign and banging on a drum – they are now instead getting pitch sequences from your signs, your sign sequence from, you know, fastball changeup, curveball, blah, 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 blah. And they're getting that sign sequence, then relaying that to a runner, and the runner relays that to the batter. So much less efficient and probably much less effective, but cheating nonetheless and using technology to do it. So Major League Baseball continues to have a major problem on their hands. Rob Manfred, by all indications, is absolutely pissed. So we'll see how that goes uh, with him. But, uh, yeah, it's just Major League Baseball has a lot of problems. They need to adapt. They have to get better at adapting uh, to new things. And, and I think there's some, there's some interesting points made in this article about wearable technology, maybe for the pitcher and the catcher. Uh, there's things about wearable technology for cheating with the batter, maybe getting buzzed in his wrist or on his on his leg or something. So wearing something under the uniform that is is causing cheating. And then, like I said, the 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 thought of pitcher and catcher communication through a device where they no longer have to use signs. So it's interesting. I, I you know, technology has affected ma- every major sport now because of the advances that we have, but. I just don't think that it's going to ever happen in baseball. They're too stingy, and the game is is too sought after and too historic for a lot of people and a lot of fans. But I think there is there is something to using it in a positive way rather than using it how it is now, uh, and that's on the players themselves, much like steroids. So that's my thought on that. Um, man, we haven't talked baseball in a while. I love talking baseball. I can't wait for baseball season uh, we're just uh, you know a few hundred days away from opening day. Looking forward to it. Uh, by uh, just just absolutely excited 
uh, for baseball season. Another thing I want to talk about is a little NBA action. And listen, I love the NBA with every fiber of my being, but my biggest problem with the league is that no one cares about the preseason. And or at least it just doesn't get not the preseason, I shouldn't say. The regular season, especially no one cares about the preseason, but the regular season nobody seems to care about it. It obviously gets over overlooked by football for the most part and then college basketball in March, and nobody really pays attention to the NBA until the playoffs, which sucks because it's a great league and it's a great product. And, um, you know, obviously with LeBron James no longer being on the East Coast, there's no huge superstar on the East Coast to pay a bunch of attention to other than uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and the Celtics have just a bunch of good players and nobody especially great. The Heat are better. Uh, The Raptors no longer have Kawhi Leonard. The Sixers are probably your most star-studded team in the East, but they don't really have uh, too much television value and so on and so forth. So I wanted to take a look really quick, just take a look at, at you know at the midway point here for most of these teams and see where teams are in the NBA standings um, and what to expect, kind of any of my takeaways and, and things like that. So let's start with the Eastern Conference, the teams I just named, uh, the Bucks, the Celtics, the Heat, the Raptors, the 76ers, the Indiana Pacers, the Orlando Magic, and the Brooklyn Nets. Those are your top eight teams. And those eight teams, if the playoffs started today, would be in. So the the Milwaukee Bucks are 32 and six. They have a five game lead over the Heat and the Celtics. The Celtics are at 25 and nine. The Heat at 26 and 10. Uh, the Indiana Pacers are 23 and 14. This is a really deep team. This is a team I think could cause some trouble for some for for other teams in the playoffs. I really like the Pacers, and then with Vic Oladipo coming back later on, they're going to be a team to really watch out for. Um, the the seven and eight seeds in the East, the Magic and the Nets, they both have losing records. The Magic are at seventeen and twenty, the Nets at sixteen and nineteen, and the Nets doing this without, for the most part, Kyrie Irving, who's missed most of the season, and Kevin Durant, which we knew going in would be uh, out for the entire year. So I think the Nets are an interesting team moving forward. Uh, Kyrie had, Kyrie Irving is an absolute head case; he cannot be trusted, and there are some issues deep within him that may cause some serious problems for the Nets moving forward. Uh, you look at the rest of the East, a bunch of bad teams, the Hornets, the Bulls, the Pistons, the Wizards, the Cavs, the Knicks, and the god-awful Atlanta Hawks at 8-29. and 29. So uh, my Bulls are 13-24, and 24, and I am thankful every day they are not 8-29 and 29 like the Hawks or 10-26 and 26 like the Cleveland Cavaliers because we don't like anything from Cleveland. Take a look at the West. It's the Lakers with the top spot right now. They are 29-7, and 20-4 in the Western Conference. They have a four-game lead over the two-seeded Denver Nuggets, who are 25-11. and 11. The Rockets come in at the three-seed, 24-11. and 11. The Clippers are 26-12 and 12 and come in at four. The Utah Jazz are 24-12. and 12. They are the fifth seed. Your six, seven, and eight seed are the Dallas Mavericks, Oklahoma City Thunder, and San Antonio, and San Antonio Spurs. Almost at San Antonio Holmes. Go Bucks. The Mavs are 23 and 13, the Thunder 20 and 16, and the Spurs are 15 and 20, yet they are in position to be in the playoffs. Uh, which I think is interesting. I think the Lakers right now are still the best team in the league, despite how good Milwaukee's record is. Any team that has LeBron James is going to be the better team. I'm interested to see where they go in the second half of this season. I'm interested to see if the Clippers can make a run for that top spot as well. Uh, it, it has always kind of felt like it's going to be the Clippers and the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals with a trip to uh, to the to the finals on the line. I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure. I think Denver is Denver is a lot like Indiana in my mind, where they're deep. They're just a bunch of good ball players. They can play some defense, and uh, I'm interested to see where they go. And the Utah Jazz, same way. They're 24 and 12. They've won six straight. I think they could obviously make some noise and hurt some teams. Come playoff team, your worst team in the Western Conference is something we haven't seen very in, in quite some time. That's the Golden State Warriors. They are nine and 29. No Steph Curry, no Clay Thompson. They uh, obviously lost Kevin Durant. They uh, don't have Andre Iguodala anymore. They are not. They are just a shell of the team they have been over the past several seasons, mainly due to injury and obviously some free agents leaving. They are playing definitely the long game and will uh, expect it to, to be better in the second half of the season and uh, certainly will be much better next season. Uh, some other teams, the uh, the Grizzlies are right there knocking on the door at 15-22. and 22. Ja Morant has had an excellent start to this season. Uh, the Phoenix Suns, 14-22, and 22, and uh, the Kings, Pelicans, and Warriors, like I said. Nobody really uh, too special on the bottom half of the West there, but... Let's take a look at the uh, leaders. All right, so here we are. The uh, the leaders, the official leaders for the regular season as we reach, like I said, the halfway point um, in terms of points. James Harden leads the league in scoring at 38.4 points per game. Giannis Antetokounmpo right behind him at 30.2. Luka Doncic, the incredible European young star at 29.7. Trey Young for a bad Atlanta Hawks team is fourth at 28.9. And Bradley Beal at 27.8, which I think is uh, is really interesting as well. Um, let's take a look. I'm trying to look at like everything. This this is uh, uh, this NBA site sucks. Okay, here we go. Let's take a look at uh, who's your rebounding leader. Andre Drummond at uh, rebounds 15.9 a game. Rudy Gobert at 14 and a half. Clint Capella, 14.2. Hassan Whiteside, 13.9. And fifth is Domitas Sabonis at 13 rebounds a game. Assists per game uh, or assists, yeah, assists per game. LeBron James, no question there. He's having one of his best passing seasons in offensive speed. He's, he's averaging 24 9, uh, 24 point, 24.9. Okay. Am I ever going to get this out? LeBron James is averaging 24.9 points per game. 7.9 rebounds, 11 assists, and one steal. Pretty good uh, for uh, for an old man like LeBron James. He's played in 35 games as well. So he's the only person in the NBA right now to average double figures in assists. He's at uh, 11. Ricky Rubio at 9.3. Luka Doncic up there at 8.9. Is there anything else that we uh, that we care about here? Let's take a look at steals. Who's average, who's leading the league in steals? 2.2 a game. Ben Simmons. 2.0 a game, Jimmy Butler and Andre Drummond, Chris Dunn up there as well, Fred Van Fleet at 1.9. So those are your leaders. That's what we're uh, that's what we're learning. Uh, Kawhi, Ka- <laughs> not Kawhi, Kawhi, <laughs> Kawhi Leonard at 25.3 points a game. He's averaging um, 7.6 rebounds a game and 5.1 assists. So a solid season for him as well. But uh, obviously you have the load management to worry about there. Okay, so this is going to be a very quick and abbreviated version of your NFL playoff recap, and uh, we have a lot to get to. We're going to blow past half an hour, just so everybody knows. We're going to just blow right past it. Um, so here's here's the two things that I really, I really was uh, was kind of crazy for 
this let's just look at the scores first. Wild card weekend in the NFL. The Texans beat the Bills twenty two to nineteen. The Titans beat the Patriots twenty to thirteen. That's your first surprise. The Vikings beat the Saints twenty six to twenty. That's your second surprise. And the Seahawks beat the Eagles seventeen to nine. That wasn't really much of a surprise to anybody. So you look ahead at the divisional playoffs. Minnesota will go to Santa Clara to play the the uh, San Francisco 49ers. That's at four thirty five on Saturday. The Titans will travel to Baltimore to take on the number one seeded Baltimore Ravens. That's at eight fifteen on Saturday night. On uh, Sunday at three oh five, the Texans are at the Kansas City Chiefs. And at 6.40, the Seahawks travel to Lambeau Field to take on the Green Bay Packers. So I'm upset because the Saints lost. I was absolutely blown away by this outcome. I did not expect it by any means. Um, and I, I just Kirk Cousins made a perfect throw when he had to. There are people that are questioning the final play of the game, whether or not Kyle Rudolph should have been called for pass interference. I don't know that I would have called it. If I would have, I would have called it on both of them. I did think Rudolph extended his arm fully. I think it does warrant pass interference, but I think that there was a lot of hand fighting. I'm not good with a no call there. I'd rather them call it both on both, have it offsetting, and do it over again. Um, but the Saints now have lost three straight playoff games on the final play of the game, and uh, that sucks really, really badly for them. The other surprise, and some people weren't surprised by this, but I still was, was Tennessee over New England. Um Tennessee, you you knew was the better team, but the Patriots have the benefit of the doubt because they have Tom Brady, because they were at home, and because they haven't played in the wild card round in ten years, and they haven't not played an AFC Championship game in ten years. You expect them to win this game, especially against uh, Ryan Tannehill, so on and so forth. But the uh, the Titans just kept feeding Derrick Henry. He kept gashing the Patriots. Their offense was anemic. They couldn't score at all. And uh, it was 14-13. to 13. That looked like that was going to be the final. And then Tom Brady on the final uh, possession of the game throws a pass that was, I believe, intended for Mohamed Sanu, tipped in the air, intercepted, and then taken to the house. So that uh, score uh, was a little bit uh, different than, um, than the actual outcome of the game. So that, I think, is all interesting. And, and there's two things I want to take away, two things I want to talk about from those games. First and foremost, Minnesota over New Orleans. We talk all the time, and the media has talked all the time, about Kirk Cousins not being able to win a big game. Well, Kirk Cousins finally won a big game. Here he was in the locker room after beating the Saints on Sunday. That's how we've won all year, team, right? Yes, hey, you held them to 20 points, man. Yes, sir. You gave us a chance at the end. I got three words for you. You like that? How great is that? Kirk Cousins dropping the famous, you like that, to his Minnesota teammates in the locker room. They all mobbed him. They went crazy. He was fired up. He delivered a perfect throw to Adam Thielen when they needed it the most, and he absolutely earned that victory for Minnesota, as did their defense. I'm excited. I'm excited for Coach Mike Zimmer. He's my favorite coach in the NFL. He should have been the Bengals coach a few years ago. I'm not still bitter about it. But anyways, um, yeah, I thought that was really, really awesome uh, for Kirk Cousins and Minnesota. And I was bummed, obviously. I picked the Saints to win the Super Bowl. I picked them to play the Kansas City Chiefs in Miami, but they uh, obviously did not get there. Um, But uh, now we move on. So the other thing I found interesting, obviously, like I said, Tennessee and New England, there was – 
After the game, the the speculation has been there all season long. What is next for Tom Brady and the New England Patriots? Is his time there done? Is Josh McDaniels leaving? What's Bill Belichick going to do? So on and so forth. Here was Tom Brady in the post-game press conference after the game. Uh, I know that you keep saying that you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Is there any possibility that you would retire after the, this last season? Uh, I, you know, I would say it's pretty unlikely, but yeah, hopefully unlikely. Hopefully unlikely. What does that say to you? That says to me that Tom Brady will probably retire if he does not get what he wants from the New England Patriots. Hopefully unlikely. Meaning he doesn't want to, this is how I interpreted it, he doesn't want to play anywhere else. So the only way he would retire is if he did not get what he felt he deserved from the Patriots. And you can look back at all these times when Brady has taken a quote-unquote team-friendly deal and the Patriots have said one thing and done another. I think that's pissed Tom Brady off quite a bit. I think the fact that they made a concentrated effort to get him weapons this season and it didn't work was frustrating for Brady. I think Josh McDaniels already has one foot out the door. He had already done that once before uh, in going to, to Indianapolis but didn't make it. Uh, did, obviously was was pulled back by Bill Belichick. I, I think those are two interesting situations. I think Brady wants to be back. I, I don't know what the status of those relationships is. I think it's interesting to find out what the punishment will be for New England with this videotaping scandal, which it will, will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I just There's so much unknown. This was the worst I've seen the Patriots in 10 or 15 years. They looked awful. I just I think that there will be wholesale changes when it comes to their offense. Maybe that means McDaniels is gone. There's some people that think McDaniels will get the job in Cleveland. Uh, I think personally I'm rooting for that because I think it will be an absolute disaster. So I hope that happens. Um, but I, I, I can't really see Tom Brady going anywhere else, and I don't know that he would want to do that. I don't know that he would want to move his family uh, to some other city, whether it be you know Los Angeles, which I'm sure he has a home there, or, you know, just some random team, Carolina. I don't see that happening. So, I don't know. It, it's just it's just a lot, a lot of question marks with Tom Brady. And what that quote told me is that he doesn't want to retire, but if he doesn't get what he feels he deserves, he probably will. And uh, I don't think anyone would blame him for that. Okay, so very quickly, as we approach over half an hour here, two things I want to talk about. Um it, well, actually, one thing I really want to talk about, two things, two things, two things. I'm the worst, I know. One thing I want to talk about is the head coaching vacancies. They have all been filled except for one, and that is the Cleveland Browns. Ron Rivera, the former Panthers coach, goes to the Washington Redskins. I think that'll be a great fit. I think they'll end up getting Trent Williams back. As long as Dan Snyder gets out of the way and lets Ron Rivera do whatever the hell he wants, the Redskins will be back to being a prominent and relevant franchise in the next four or five years. Mark my words on that. Mike McCarthy to the Cowboys I thought was very interesting. I think it's a safe hire for Jerry Jones. I think Mike McCarthy is ready. I, I watched a, a piece that NFL Network did on him a few weeks ago that was very impressive how he has stayed ready. He has assembled a staff, even a staff of former coaches that also were out of a job, and they they basically operated like a coaching staff, and they met every week and every day and talked about the game and so on and so forth. Um, 
And I, I thought that was interesting, and I think Mike McCarthy will absolutely be um, uh, will be successful in Dallas, but I, I kind of see him as a Wade Phillips, somebody that could never quite get him over the hump. We'll see what they do, especially with Dak Prescott's contract in the offseason. And the two surprising ones, Joe Judge to the New York Giants. Joe Judge is the Patriots special teams coordinator. We've seen time and time again special teams coordinators and special guys with special teams backgrounds like John Harbaugh and so on and so forth have been successful head coaches in the NFL in the past. It would not surprise me at all if Joe Judge is the same, but honestly, like most of you, I don't know anything about the guy. But obviously the Giants did not hire him because this guy, Matt Rule, was hired by the Carolina Panthers. And if you ask me, I bet Matt Rule's money was what decided this factor for him. They're going to be giving him a $70 million deal, almost $10 million a year. It's actually going to be 60 at six years and a seventh year at a $10 million option for Carolina, which I think is fascinating. That is a lot of money for a guy that's never coached a down in the NFL. He's the 2019 Big 12 Coach of the Year from Baylor, Matt Rule, going to the Carolina Panthers. They also have quarterback questions with Cam Newton. I think those are interesting. Uh, Adam Schefter from ESPN is reporting that the Browns want a deal done for their head coach by Saturday. And like I said, all signs are pointing towards um, Josh McDaniels. They have interviewed some other people like Kevin Stefanski from Minnesota, so on and so forth. Um, and there's already, this is another thing I want to make, uh, I want to be clear on real quick. There's been a, a lot made about the lack of black coaches in the NFL. This is two straight years without very many of them have been hired so far. Like I said, four jobs. They've all been white guys. and uh, Well, three white guys and one minority in Ron Rivera. Um, last year there was several jobs and only one minority was hired, and that was Brian Flores. He did a great job in Miami despite a horrible team. He was very impressive in the second half, I thought, with the Dolphins, and I think he'll be a good coach. Uh, Marvin Lewis interviewed for the Dallas Cowboys job. There were a couple other minorities that have interviewed, but those all appear to be attempts to satisfy the Rooney rule, which is sad. I hope that's really not the case. I hope these candidates were were taken seriously. Marvin Lewis is an absolutely capable coach in the NFL, an absolutely capable head coach in the NFL. For, if you don't know what the Rooney rule is, it was it was started by Art Rooney back in the day to it was it mandates that every team interview minorities for their head coaching position. And the goal of this is to get more minorities in head coaching positions and in positions of power in the National Football League. Right now, there's only three minority head coaches in the NFL, Ron Rivera, Mike Tomlin, Brian Flores, and Anthony Lynn. That's actually four. So four minority head coaches in the NFL out of 32 teams. That's not very good. There's, I believe, one or two uh, minority GMs, uh, very, very few of them. And so that's an issue. But uh, just a short list of people that I th- that are minorities that I think absolutely are qualified. Marvin Lewis, obviously the former Bengals head coach. Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator in Kansas City. Robert Sala, the defensive coordinator in San Francisco, has been incredible. Leslie Fraser, Fraser, who has been a head coach in this league before, has done great things with the Buffalo uh, Buffalo Bills defense. Chris Richard, the Dallas Cowboys defensive backs coach, has been very impressive. I think he could easily land a job. George Edwards, the Minnesota Vikings defensive coordinator, has also been very impressive and somebody that could land a job. I think Hugh Jackson is still qualified, maybe not as a head coach right now, but as a as an offensive coordinator for sure. Another interesting name that, that has come out of this is Byron Leftwich, uh, the former Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback, and uh, he's had his struggles for sure in the league, but he has taken a step forward certainly 
as an offensive coordinator and as a play caller under Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay. Um, I think he would have some traction, maybe not this year, but over the next couple of years. I think that's something to keep an eye on, and I think that is the minority head coach thing is, and really minorities in power in general in the NFL, is a serious problem that I, I think the NFL will have to continue to address. So I hope that uh, that those those interviews with guys like Marvin Lewis and Eric Bieniemy were not just so they satisfy the Rooney rule, and I hope that uh, those candidates were legitimately considered for their positions. Okay, so I want to do very quickly and as quickly as I can because I want to give this appropriate time. Uh, the city of Cincinnati lost two uh, icons, two sports legends over the past week since I last recorded the podcast. They were Chuck Mayshock and Sam Weish. And uh, some some of you might recognize Sam Weish more than you would Chuck Mayshock. Chuck Mayshock, uh, quite frankly, was a legend at the University of Cincinnati. As a player in 1956 and 1957, a student coach in 58 and 59 alongside Oscar Robinson, he was an assistant coach in 1990 through 1993 under head coach, head coach Bob Huggins. He was uh, often known as Bob Huggins' best friend. He also spent 25 seasons from 1993 to 2017 for 700 WLW radio broadcasts as a Bearcats game analyst. He was um, as an assistant under head coach Bob Huggins. Maychok helped bent, mentor the Bearcats to a 94 and 36 overall record in appearance in the 1992 Final Four and great great Midwest Conference regular season and tournament championships in 92 and 93. As an assistant in Ohio State, Maychok helped guide the Buckeyes to three NCAA tournament appearances and four 20-win seasons while recruiting nine players who later played in the NBA. As a head coach at Steubenville College in 69-72, to he won 38 games in three seasons, turning around a program that had posted only 11 victories in the three seasons prior to his arrival. He was inducted into the UC Athletics James P. Kelly Hall of Fame as a contributor in October of 2016. And, and for a lot of people, he was going to be remembered for what happened in 2003 at an NCAA tournament game in the first round. The Bearcats lost to Gonzaga, and uh, UC head coach Bob Huggins got ejected, and radio analyst Chuck Mayshock was also famously thrown out of that 2003 first-round game. Uh, for me, he was always a joy to listen to, and uh, for me, as a, as a fan of, of basketball and someone that listened to UC broadcasts from time to time, and then obviously um, moving down here, and, and he hasn't he hasn't done it in a few years, obviously, but he was uh, he was the person that I thought of when I thought of UC basketball, and uh, and uh, very very uh, sad that. That you know, there are people that I work with that were very close to him, and uh, sad that uh, a man like him had to go. Uh, he was at the age, I believe, of 82, and a good guy, and uh, somebody that was absolutely um, will be missed in the Cincinnati area. To piggyback on that, unfortunately, there was another legend that died, and that was Sam Weish. Sam Weish was the head coach former head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. He head coached them uh, to their second Super Bowl appearance. And uh, what I'm going to do, he died at the age of 74. He was an innovative and volative NFL coach. And uh, the Washington Post posted this, um, this obituary about Sam that I'm going to read now. 
Sam Weish, an NFL coach who pushed the boundaries as an offensive innovator with the Cincinnati Bengals, landing the team to a Super Bowl appearance after the 88 season died January 2nd in Pickens, South Carolina. He was 74 years old. One of the Bengals' original quarterbacks during the team's inaugural season in 68, Weish was known for his offensive innovations as a coach. He led the Bengals to a 12-4 record in 1988 using a no-huddle offense that forced the league to change its substitution rules. Cincinnati reached the Super Bowl only to lose in the game's final minute to San Francisco 49ers 20-16. They have not reached the Super Bowl since he was there. Earlier in his career, Weish was an assistant coach for the 49ers and for one season the head coach at Indiana University. The Bengals hired him as a head coach in 1984. He was considered a nonconformist in a straight-laced league. He refused to comply with the NFL's locker room policy for media ran up the score to settle personal grudges, and belittled the city of Cleveland during his eight seasons in Cincinnati. When fans were throwing snowballs on the field during a Bengals home game against the Seahawks in 1989, Weiss grabbed the public address announcer's microphone and admonished the fans in this way to encourage them to stop by saying, you don't live in Cleveland, you live in Cincinnati. After that game, he violated league policy by bearing reporters from the barring reporters from the locker room and clamping a gag order on his players, which resulted in a $3,000 fine from the league. A year later, he defied then-Commissioner Paul Tagliabue by not allowing female reporters in the locker room, leading to a national uproar. He was unrepentant despite being fined $27,941 at the time, the largest fine by a head coach for a head coach in NFL history. He said, quote, I will not allow women to walk in on 50 naked men. In Cincinnati, he designed an offense that was built around Boomer Esiason. He developed what he called a sugar huddle, a no-huddle offense in which the team stayed near the line of scrimmage while making a quick substitution. If the defense tried to match the substitution, the Bengals would snap the ball and have their opponents penalized for having too many players on the field. The, later, the NFL later adopted a rule allowing the defense to match an offense's substitution before the ball is snapped, and that rule is still in play today. During his 12 years as a head coach, including four with Tampa Bay, Weish had an 84-107 and record. He was 61-66 and in Cincinnati with two playoff appearances. He was the quarterback coach for the Bills in 04 and 05 and served as a television analyst after that. He was the, best, he was the Bengals' head coach the last time they won a playoff game. Sam Weish dead at the age of 74 and a huge loss to the Bengal family. So that is going to wrap things up for me on this episode, episode number 19 of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. Thank you for staying with me on a much longer episode than what I normally have. I normally end things by saying Ball Don't Lie and have fun, be safe, and go Bucks and follow me on social medias, which is basically just Twitter and Instagram, at Adi Elmore, A-U-T-Y-E-L-M-O-R-E. And I have just done those things, but in this particular episode, I'm going to end it with this. My favorite thing, probably, that has ever happened. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, and get them out of here. You don't live in Cleveland, you